Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is The Cunning Figure of the Virus with Elizabeth Povanelli. We're listening to Three Points and a Mountain by Peter Brutzmann. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the figure of the virus demands our attention. Elizabeth Pavanelli's conceptual work on the virus feels prescient. Pavanelli is a critical theorist, filmmaker, and professor of anthropology and gender studies at Columbia University. Her writing is focused on developing a critical theory of late settler liberalism that would support an anthropology of what she calls the otherwise, meaning something other than the late liberalism and settler colonialism we know as capitalism. This potential theory has unfolded across her five books, numerous essays, and 35 years of collaboration with her indigenous colleagues in North Australia, including, most recently, six films they have created as members of the Karabing Film Collective. Karabing means tied out in the Emiengo language. Episode producer Bella Bravo begins the interview asking about Pavanelli's most recent academic work, Geontologies, a Requiem to Late Liberalism. In 2017, geontologies re-theorized biopower and necropolitics in the age of climate change. And Pavanelli's theses about the shifting phases of capitalism are drawn from the observations of her indigenous collaborators in northern Australia. The fact that the virus is a symptom of capitalism seems like a simple conclusion. But Pavanelli explains that the virus reveals how historic modes of governance that regulate the distinction between life and non-life don't actually work. The virus is both life and non-life, and the rhetorics of war and health don't fix the danger of the structures that mark some people as worthy of health care, steady income, and life, and others not. In an essay accompanying excerpts from her forthcoming book, Pavanelli writes that the novel coronavirus is a virus pulled out of its habit and habitats by routes and worlds that hold and enhance extractive capitalism. Tentatively entitled The Inheritance, this more personal work brings visuals to print in a new form for Pavanelli. The book follows Pavanelli's ancestral story beginning at the turn of the century on the violent frontier of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Italian peninsula in the midst of national unification, up to her childhood in Louisiana during the 1960s and 1970s, a period of renewed struggle against white supremacy. But the effects of late liberalism and its twin, late capitalism, threaten once again to overwhelm, as Louisiana has the highest rate of mortality from COVID-19 in the United States, and black people in Louisiana make up 70% of the deaths. And now, the cunning figure of the virus, with Elizabeth Povanelli on Interchange on WFHB. I read Geoontologies when it came out uh, a couple years ago. And so when the COVID pandemic and the economic crisis and the affective crisis started to bubble up um, here in the States about six or seven weeks ago, my mind went straight to your concept, your figure of the virus. Um, and right. so I'm really excited to talk to you and have you you walk through it because Geoontologies for me, was a book that ha- was looking at late liberalism as opposed to a, a static phase um, as one that is crumbling. 
And I think we see that very clearly with COVID. And so I was wondering if you could start by talking, explaining what geoontology and geoontopower is, and we can just kind of go from there. The book was written not under the not under the pressure of the current COVID nineteen crisis, but really in the wake of the concept of the Anthropocene and of the really the the unavoidability of climate collapse. Not only climate change, but climate collapse. And so the Anthropocene, as you might know, uh, doesn't simply refer to the fact that humans have become the dominant force geologically, meteorologically, ecologically on the planet, but that it's a that humans are a a a, a dangerous force. They're they're a malignant force. Um, and a lot of people then said, of course, it's not humans. It's a it's a particular social relation we call capitalism. So it's capitalism and those people who profit from capitalism that are the force destroying the earth leading to climate collapse, etc. So geontologies was written in order to address that period of time. And the the main argument in the book is that liberalism as a form of governance that emerged out of the colonial era, right? So liberalism, Europe, capitalism are all products of colonialism. They didn't exist before colonialism, and a particular kind of colonialism that is the double structure of indigenous dispossession and West African enslavement. So we have two kinds of violences that uh, gave rise to this mode of governance we call liberalism, and then a mode of economy we call capitalism. So geontologies says look, that mode of governance that we call liberalism, and in particular, a a phase of liberalism that I call late liberalism, always operated not on the basis of the management of life and death, but on the basis of the division between those things that are classified as life and that which is classified as non-life. And by that, I don't mean life and death, right? Because death in the Western imaginary is really a crucial element of life. That is, you define life on the basis of birth and death, right? That which can be born and that which can die. And then you separate out those forms of existence from other forms such as rocks and minerals, wind, fog, that can come in, come into existence but aren't born and don't die. And in, in Western uh, metaphysics and Western ontologies, this notion of life as as something that is born and has an end, sets up our basic or the West's basic ethics and politics. And Foucault, for instance, understanding of biopower, but also his understanding of sovereignty all rests on the ability to kill or let live, right? And ethics, like you think of Heidegger's ethics, all rests on the fact that because humans can die and because humans know they can die, that they that they measure their life on the basis of what it will have looked like at the end. Okay, so what geontologies does is to say the deeper formation of liberalism is not biopolitics, it's not life and death, but rather this other division that separates out life in all of its forms from non-life and then ranks various kinds of life according to that division. For instance, 
and in a really simple way, you can see it is the the racist, primitivist discourse of Stone Age people, right? So they use the stone as this self-evident, inert, unchanging, uh, lacking in potential element that then they qualify a people with and justify colonization on the basis of, right? So that you rank humans according to the very division of like self, you know, all the, all the rhetorics of colonialism. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Bella Bravo speaks with anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli about the cunning of late liberalism on display in the trickery of extending its conception of rights conceived through white supremacy and slavery to those once deemed otherwise. You mentioned Foucault and Heidegger, and of course, uh, Amembe also comes Amembe. into this. And you yep. note in the book that biopower and necropolitics are really the same thing. So we see this extractive economy that is incredibly violent continuing on. Uh, it's the same today. It's working through similar mechanisms and this division between life and death. It's tricky. It's not the division between life and death. It's the division between life, which includes death and non-life. And the reason it's important is that that division is used to, as I said, used to create this civilizational ranking that allows certain people, like Ashil talks about, to be viciously treated. It justifies that. At the same time, it allows for all kinds of violences that are essential to capitalism. For instance, extractive mining, uh, the concretization of the planet, the toxic remainders of mining in Congo, all these forms of violence that we see in extractive capitalism is justified on the basis that, look, we're not killing anything. We're not murdering anything. You can't murder a rock. You can't you can't kill a landscape. Although again, we're trying to think this through. So it's really trying to think, okay, how is biopolitics subtended by geontological politics or geonto power? Um, and this becomes really important under the pressure of the concept of climate collapse, because Suddenly in the West, in the natural sciences, you see a lot of people saying, oh my God, this division we made between that, those things that are alive and those things that are not, that is between bio, biology and geology, is not only a false division, right? It's not, it's not merely wrong, but it's dangerous. And it's dangerous insofar as new sciences of climate show us that, that what we consider to be outside of biology outside of climate is actually crucial to the maintenance of a form of climate that keeps us in the shape we want to be, i.e. alive. I put scare quotes on that, right? So waters and winds and sands and soils, all these things are the, are in the internal organs of climate. So you can't say, well, there's life and then there's this inert stuff. No, this inert stuff is part and parcel of this planetary well-being. And so the natural scientists started saying, oh, how do we rethink these categories that we've kept divided? How do we start reintegrating them? So they come up with bio, geochemistry, and and things like that. And thus, these divisions of existence that have been so fundamental to Western ethics, Western sciences, Western understandings of power, such as biopower and necropower, how do we understand the concepts that are emerging, the figures that are emerging, 
as these divisions that were governing the world are no longer working for those who were benefiting from that governance, right? Which people? Capitalism, settler colonialism, and its formations of white supremacy, right? So they all benefited and suddenly they're not benefiting anymore. And so they want to rethink or they're being forced to reconceptualize that division. And that's where these figures come from. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli discusses the figure of the virus, an antagonistic agent built out of the collective assemblage that is late liberalism, perhaps most readily imagined as the zombie. Life turned to non-life and transformed into species war. In your book, you make very clear that this uh, intellectual work that you're doing isn't to help the capitalists continue to explain their world and reconfigure, but instead to, as we shift in late capitalism, to have, I think you call it an anthropology of the otherwise. Um, This is a, a theory of something other than a continuation of settler colonialism and capitalism. Right. That's right. All my work has been really been focused on a cunning ruse that liberalism employed in the 70s and 70s, 80s, and it spread globally in explicit and implicit forms. And the the ruse is this, that from the 50s on, there was an incredibly powerful and effective critique of the civilizational rhetoric of liberalism. That is, the liberal world's justification of dispossession, of imperialism, of gunboat capitalism, etc. Their justification of this as a civilizational practice. That is, we're exchanging civilization for the wealth we're extracting from your bodies and your lands. And in the, by the 1950s, that justification for violent capitalism was no longer working. And it wasn't working because there were these incredible theorists and activists who ripped the face off of civilizational liberalism. Literally. I mean, they just said, you're, you're not doing this for us. You've never been doing this for us. You know, they, they took this smiling face off and said, look, there's a demon behind it. Right. And that critique of the legitimacy structures, the legitimacy discourses of liberalism was really working. So what did liberal capital regimes do? Across the globe, we saw this shift in which in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in Europe, in different places, implicitly or explicitly, we saw a shift in which liberal governance and liberal theorists said, oh my goodness, you're, you're right. We were racist. We were using civilization as an alibi for extracting wealth from you and accumulating it in our cities and our bodies and our families, etc. And we apologize. And what we would like to do is to recognize all of your worth on the basis of your cultural difference. So it was it was the politics of liberal multicultural recognition, right? Now, why is it a ruse? Well, and I'm not the only one to have said this. I mean, I wrote about this in The Cunning of Recognition years ago, but the ruse was so bold and, but so effective. The trick was that recognition, liberal recognition changed the direction of the questions of legitimacy rather than liberalism and liberal colonialism and liberal capitalism having to account for their their ravaging of worlds. Suddenly, 
the other within those worlds had to account for their cultural difference, how they were culturally different and yet still within the general framework of the good human, right? So suddenly liberals were just sitting there going, go ahead, tell us about how you're different, but not so different that you trigger this affect of repulsion so that we want to murder you. And and that was this amazing little trick. Now, all of my work has been focused on in, in many ways, focused on that trick. And what we see in this moment in which the division between life and non-life is not working anymore is now understood to be not only wrong, but dangerous. I, I'm trying to figure out how liberalism is maneuvering such that they're trying to find another trick whereby they can keep the structures of accumulation flowing in a certain direction, right? That's why I talk about the three figures of Gianto power. As this division between life and non-life is crumbling, what figures and discourses are we hearing and how do those figures and discourses potentially reverse the direction of critique and thus squash the possibility for another world that is already in the world to both emerge, strengthen, and extend itself, right? It's time for a break. This is Last Desert One from the 2020 release Last Desert by guitarist Liberty Elman. Stay with us for more with anthropologist Elizabeth Povinelli when Interchange returns. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits. Located at 922 South Morton Street, Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. Back to Interchange, our show is The Cunning Figure of the Virus with anthropologist Elizabeth Povinelli. In this segment, Povinelli notes that capitalism came under strong attack in the 1960s through myriad freedom struggles, gaining traction in the public imaginary by asserting that difference, a mark conveyed by the oppressor, was not a synonym for inferiority. And so liberalism had to play a trick to save capital. Difference was asked to explain itself so it might be found acceptable. In this new epic of climate change, liberalism must make use of a new trick. I do think that how you talk about this shift from the the figures that Foucault uses in biopolitics um, and how those aren't as effective today in explaining like the enclosed world mix that is like how governance functions. I think that that would be really helpful if you could talk through that. In the latter part of his life, he he started to theorize power. Um, We saw some of the shape of how he conceptualized power in three of his uh, Collage de France 
lectures. Uh, Society Must Be Defended, Security, Territory, and Property, and the Birth of Biopolitics. The problematic he was trying to think through was a shift in formations of, I would say, European power from what he called sovereignty to what he called biopower. Sovereignty was defined for Foucault as the power to kill or let live. So, and, you know, and he had the, he used this very beautiful, horrible figure of the king and the, the man who is drawn and quartered. So the king can say, or the sovereign says, you know, thumb up, i.e., no, he can live or thumb down. No, he must die. And then the public spectacle of, of death, of sovereign death. So, you know, drawing quartering is, is quite dramatic. There are ropes tied around your wrists and your legs and horses pull you apart as people hack at your joints. I mean, and, and Foucault was really like, let's look at that. That was the form that power took. The sovereign defined his or her power on the basis of being able to kill you in this dramatic fashion or let you live. And then he says nationalism this new form of liberal nationalism emerges in and through a new understanding of power as sunk within those who make live better and that which lets die. So as opposed to kill and let live, you have make live and let die. And then within this biopolitical power, there were two sorts of or two modes that Foucault was thinking about. One, we could think about in terms of Fordist production. So, you know, the Fordist factory in which everything was interchangeable and what you were trying to do is homogenize units. And of course, Foucault talked about the kind of modern classroom in which everything was in order and everyone had to be the same so you could slot everybody around. The second the second form of bio power that Foucault was thinking about was along a more statistical curve of normatization. It's a funny word. The norm of high blood pressure is X. And so we're going to try and get everyone into as close as possible to that norm so we can make everyone live more effectively. And through living more effectively, you generate wealth and generate um, the health of the population. Okay. So that, that was, that was Foucault. And Achille and Bembe and a number of other uh, post-colonial critics, of course, started to pull Foucault's very Western-centric um, account of the emergence of biopower, tried to pull it out of Europe and put it back in history and back into colonial orders. And so you have Achille saying, look, biopower really emerges in the spectacles of killing and death in the African colonies, in the African imperial world. The Europeans experiment with biopolitics there and then re-import the necropolitical side of biopolitics back into Europe um, during the Second World War. So this is Foucault, and we, for a very long time, the, the most of critical theory, most theories of power and sovereignty have focused on governance through life right? The governance of living better, producing more value. And, um, or they look at the ways in which the governance through life is always tied to the exceptions of killability, right? So in the war on terror and stuff, right? But again, all of that is about biopolitics. And for Foucault, there were four figures that emerged during the rise of biopower. And the four figures represented different aspects of biopower. The figures were the Malthusian couple, 
so that as as people started thinking, wait, where does value come from? Where does where does a good life come from? They started thinking of, well, this reproductive couple. How do you make reproduction? Uh, how do you align it to wealth? The second was the masturbating child. The masturbating child was a problem because it was considered something that that didn't contribute to the population's productivity. Then you had the hysterical woman and the perverse, I can't remember, it's the homosexual basically. And each one of these figures, Foucault says, it comes out, this becomes a problem because we have a new form of power. They weren't a problem before because the problem wasn't about making live with better health. And so when power starts expressing itself in terms of a healthier life, a more productive life, suddenly we see these four figures. We start to see this individual as a social problem. Absolutely. The individual, the couple as a social problem. Sexuality comes to be about health and population and wealth. Right, all of that. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Bella Bravo speaks with anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli about the cunning of late liberalism on display in the trickery of extending its conception of rights conceived through white supremacy and slavery to those once deemed otherwise. So the question is, are these figures relevant today? Yeah. In Gianto power, right? It's not like biopower goes away. We still, you know, we still are, are are governed through discourses and practices of life. And it's not the fact that Gianto power is a new form of power or a form of power that's replacing biopower. Gianto power, as I say in the book, has been operating in the open in many parts of the world so that if you're indigenous in Australia, you know that you are being governed by this imaginary division between life and non-life because you've been called first as Stone Age people and the exterminations of your family and your ancestors were legitimated on the basis of you being out of time and stone-like and inert, not developing, not right. your potential is just inert. Um, and then in liberal recognition, you are treated as like, oh, so strange that you would think that rocks and rivers are, you know, part and parcel of your body and interdependent on each other, right? So in both of these forms, both settler colonialism when it's in its most vicious form and then settler colonialism in its liberal, late liberal form of recognition, both of them are treating you as different on the basis of this division. Okay. Gianto power isn't new. Gianto power has subtended the colonial and imperial order for a very long time. And indeed, I would say before the emergence of biopower, we had Gianto power. What makes Gianto power important now is that the effects of that division are being felt in the West. And so the West suddenly needs to change. They wouldn't have changed if you said, look, your divisions are not the divisions that are operating in indigenous worlds. They would have just said, well, that's cultural difference. They would, which is a way of dismissing it, right? That's just cultural difference. Now they suddenly say, oh, it's not cultural difference. It's actually a, a fact of existence, right? And okay, so as Gianto power becomes a more dominant global form of power as something that we can now articulate, 
We can now say, more and more people can say, this division between life and non-life is neither factual nor is it beneficiary. It's a dangerous division. Then we start hearing critical theorists, natural scientists, philosophers, legal scholars, talking in such a way you can see the emergence of three figures, and I would say symptoms of power that are different from the four figures and symptoms of biopower. And the three figures and symptoms of power are the desert, the animus, and the virus. And these three figures all, all attempt to solve the problem of this crumbling division in a slightly different way. The desert says, and again, it's not just a desert, it's, it's this imaginary of a space without life. So the desert is the moon. The desert is all of the outer space in which we can't find life, right? We, which is, where is life in outer space? That's the desert. Right. Uh, the desert is probably hell too. But anyways, the, the discourses of the desert all attempt to keep the division of life and non-life in place. It's where you hear people saying, look, there is a difference between things that are alive and things that are non-life. And if we don't figure out how to save this planet, it will become an empty desert. It will become Mars. It will become yet another gray black speck in the galaxy. It's all of that discourse in which critiques of the natural sciences are said to be naive and ignorant. The animist, as a figure, attempts to solve the problem of this crumbling division between life and non-life by saying, don't worry, everything's alive. That is, what, what we were wrong. We thought some things, some parts of existence were inert. Right? They, they didn't have an inner agency. They were like, stones that just sat there until they crumbled away or someone did something to them until a human pulled out their potential. And the the discourse of the animist extends this concept of life to all forms of existence, right? Everything's animate, everything's lively, everything's everything's vibrant. Now, if you're someone like me, you can't help but hearing this as a classic tactic in late liberalism. Why? Because it says, oh my goodness, you are exactly like me, but just different. <laughs> so speak in my language and tell me how you're exactly like me, but different. But not so different that I in any way have to change my fundamental categories of justice, being, the good life, etc. Right? Right? So we see that tactic, that, that cunning of late liberalism in what otherwise might appear to be really progressive movements around the legalization of nature as persons, the legal recognition of rivers and mountains, and this the legal extension of personhood to nature is, is developed out of a progressive reinterpretation of corporate law. And it went something like this, like, well, if corporations can be persons, well, then why can't another kind of abstraction be a person? Voila, <laughs> right? Simple. Yeah, of course, this extension of personhood and a personhood, remember, that emerged out of vicious, two vicious forms of colonialism, the dispossession of indigenous lands and worlds and the vicious enslavement of West Africans and others. That's where we get our idea of personhood. And so what are we going to do? We're going to extend that to all forms of existence, right? You cannot take concepts that emerged 
to justify and legitimate dispossession and the violent extractions of value from the human and more than human world inside of those concepts are the history of violence. You need new concepts. You, you, you need to say, no, we don't want your personhood. We need something other than your personhood. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli discusses the figure of the virus, an antagonistic agent built out of the collective assemblage that is late liberalism, perhaps most readily imagined as the zombie, life turned to non-life and transformed into species war. So this always the, this, this idea that we extend, we extend rights rather than we allow the critique of rights to shatter the framework of liberal law, right? Okay, so, so the third figure is the figure of the virus. And the figure of the virus solves the division of life and non-life. The virus says, somewhat like the animus, this division is false, but the virus takes advantage of the division to extend itself. The virus says, capitalism, you act like this division justifies the destruction of worlds so that you can extract value for some and leave toxic remainders for others. Okay, we'll take advantage of that. So the virus is not simply a virus like COVID-19. The virus, you know, it's a, it's the figure of the otherwise. It's all forms of existence that that don't abide by that division and yet take advantage of those who operate on the basis of it. In the book, I'm very careful to say that these three figures, the desert, the animus, and the virus, are not exits. They're not an exit from Gianto power. They are symptoms of Gianto power's shaking. Why is that important? Well, the desert doesn't pretend to be an exit. It says, no, we need Gianto power. The animus pretends to be an exit, but I would say it's part of that cunning of late liberalism in which you say you're changing, but what you're doing is you're reinforcing a, a, a certain mode of governance. The virus, for many people who read the book, seemed to be an exit, even though I was saying none of them are an exit. Two things that are really important. One, no one wants to be in the vicinity of a virus because a virus is, in fact, taking advantage to extend itself. And the second is anyone who has been treated like a virus knows that it is an unlivable space because everyone will do everything in their power to eliminate you from the planet. Okay, so COVID-19 is, is, is a terrible, terrible example of this. And there's a way in which just even talking about COVID-19 in relation to academic work just seems... There's something wrong about it. But COVID-19 is, a, for me, is exactly what's at stake as Gianto power emerges into our consciousness and, and begins to shake as a mode of governance. Why? Because COVID-19 is not at war with us. COVID-19 is not an enemy. COVID-19 is, you know, not some evil character in a science fiction novel or film which does not make COVID-19 my friend or even my ally. It's neither one of those. COVID-19 is a form of existence that is has been pulled into existence by the operation of Gianto power, by the treatment of all forms of existence through this division, such that 
that we only care about one kind of life. And, and maybe we will broaden the base of the triangle to let, you know, higher apes in. And, but we're still maintaining a hierarchy. And what really matters is the human population and its comfort and its values, etc. So we treat, the, and, and again, it's not we. It's a specific social relation of capitalism that has many varieties now, liberal, illiberal, Chinese, right? It's got a lot of, you know, a lot of shapes to it in which this capitalist extraction machine just goes in and smashes up and smashes up as an extractive force. And it doesn't simply release something, it creates it. So COVID-19 was in a, in a whole set of interdependent relations with things in which they were all doing their thing. It becomes, it becomes this virus. It becomes, becomes this traveler that none of us want around, when it becomes lost, when capitalism creates it as a unwilling, unwitting migrant, right? So COVID-19, like the figure of the virus, COVID-19, the actual virus, doesn't make a distinction between life and non-life. It hooks rides every which way, but it takes advantage of them to accelerate itself. And so what we see now as the figure of the virus becomes an actual virus. That is a, f- a symptom of a discourse is a ma- the materialization of that discourse. What we see is the reemergence of these older, more virulent forms of liberalism. We see discourses of war. We see the shutting of boundaries. We see discourses of the other. If liberalism as such, and certainly late liberalism, emerged out of the dispossession of indigenous lands and the enslavement of West Africans and others. If if liberal concepts of person, if liberal concepts of wealth, if liberal concepts of the good emerged out of those two conditions. What COVID shows us is that liberalism has continued to shape the material world according to its values. And those values are Many, many people keep saying white supremacists at the core. So where is COVID hitting hardest? The poor, indigenous, black and brown bodies? Not because there's some racial difference in humans, but because the bodily burdens of liberalism have never been equal and have never been shared. It's time for another break. This is the title track from the 2011 release Tribe by Italian trumpeter and composer Enrico Rava. Stay with us for more on the cunning figure of the virus when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We've been talking with anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli about her book, Geontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism. In this segment, we'll turn to her essay in the form of a memoir, The Inheritance. In it, she tracks identifying forms like nationalism, ethnicity, and race across the borders of white supremacy. What does it mean to be an Italian immigrant in the Deep South? To be a distrusted minority until you're allowed to be white. I did want to get to um, this work that you're doing now that you've uh, titled The Inheritance, because um, I, I read the, the essay about the, the structures of inheritance, and then I read the picture, or I saw the pictures that are excerpts from it. It just seems like a very important wedge right now with how many people that are doing like Ancestry.com or tracing like their, their quote unquote roots. And of course, that the lens that they're going to to look at and inspect under these like uh, funny uh, genealogical microscopes is the lens of of liberalism. And I worry that as either pandemics um, like COVID nineteen or climate change increase people's a sense of fear about what the future is going to look like as late liberalism's structures of government and start to tremble and, and crumble and become less uh, predictable. My concern is, is that the, the lens is going to do exactly like what you're describing um, with how people are reacting to COVID-19 is they're going to start applying these concepts of war, of borders, of nationalism. And that's what they're going to cling to because those feel, you know, and who knows why, but maybe it's because they feel more solid um, or secure. They look back to a time that they were actually weren't even in where people like my age weren't even actually alive for. <laughs> uh, but the work that you're doing and showing how these material networks, uh, how people move along them, how people are mobile, and also bringing that into a contemporary moment with the shift from your ancestry to looking at it um, from Louisiana in the 1960s and 70s, another time of turmoil where there was a direct confrontation with racial settler capitalism. Uh, much like what we're seeing, what we were seeing with Ferguson and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, there's a, a strong right. parallel today because obviously those economies of extractive value continue today. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because in the, your essay you mentioned how COVID is pulled out of its habitat. You know, right. it's it, it it was in existence before; it will be in existence after there's some sort of quelling of the pandemic, but it is following these material networks that people follow. I think that's a really important insight because people are looking at how they've moved through time. And I worry that they're going to understand it in these very rigid ways, as opposed to the more fluid and reflective way that you're doing in your work. The Inheritance is a graphic essay um, in the guise of a memoir. It pivots between this trauma that defined my Povinelli family, so my father's side of the family, uh, uh, and where we were growing up in the, in the South. My father's side of the family comes from a little village in what is now the Italian Alps. But my father's mom and dad, so my paternal grandparents, came over during and right after the First World War when that village was in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. That is, the village, Corzolo, sat in the frontier of a national form, that is Italy, and 
a form of empire, that is the Austrian-Hungarian empire. But that village didn't conceptualize belonging on the basis of nationalism or empire. Although people in it, some people in it, some families in it identified more with Italy and some identified more with the Austrian-Hungarian empire. But they defined belonging on the basis of family descent, so paternal descent. And there were like five families who were said to originally belong to the village and they trace their ancestry right back to the 1600s. My family won. So Povinelli's are one of the original family and Povinelli's in fact have clans. So I'm a member of the Simonots clan of the Povinelli's. So it's, you know, it's, and I pick up my, <laughs> I pick up my way of belonging to Corzell through my clan. Okay. But it was a very violent, very poor, very traumatic space before and up to and during the First World War. So my father's father and his father start the process of, well, what we call chain migration, right? So my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was a anchor baby, as people are now disparagingly called. He was an anchor baby. They made sure he was born in Buffalo so that he could be the through which the rest of the family could come. Um, and we were raised under the under the this history of inheritance in which the closer you got to the place, the more the place shattered. Was it was it was it in the Austrian Hungarian Empire, like my grandfather said, or was it part of Italy, like my grandmother said, etc. So it pivots between the violence, the book pivots between the violence of our ancestry, this this inheritance of trauma and violence from our village, to the violence in which we were actually living in the deep south. So that because we moved from, I was born in Buffalo, but we moved from the north down south when I was two in 1964. Well, 1964 and 1965, as we know, are the years in which the Civil Rights Act was passed and the Voting Rights Act was passed. And it was a period of intense violence and conflict in the South with George Wallace's, George Wallace wins. I don't know if you know this young person. George Wallace wins like five states in the 1968 election. If I'm right, I'd have to look that up. Um, On the basis of segregation now, segregation, segregation then, segregation now, segregation forever. And he wins in the 68 presidential election, five states, five Southern states. Why, Why tell this story now? Why write a book about my inheritance of a traumatic, the inheritance of a trauma from the outs in relation to the violences that were going on in the South when I was growing up? And there are a couple of reasons. The first is that Americans, but I think liberal in general, find it for some reason very hard to understand that the violences of colonialism and racism aren't things that happened in the past and are now over. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Bella Bravo speaks with anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli about the cunning of late liberalism on display in the trickery of extending its conception of rights conceived through white supremacy and slavery to those once deemed otherwise. I, uh, don't ask me why, <laughs> but this seems to be very hard for people to understand that those that there are continuing burdens in bodies, and COVID makes this very clear, right? It it ravages bodies that are already ravaged by racism and settler colonialism, right? 
in Louisiana, I think they just passed the death rate for Hurricane Katrina. Then 70% of the people dying in Louisiana of COVID are black. It's just an incredibly disproportionate effect. Yeah. and, and, And that effect is a horrific demonstration that these violences are not in the past. They are a structural material condition of the present. The burdens of the past are materialized in the present. The second reason was that I was, we've been seeing um, a shift that's happening around whiteness in which in the beginning, and this this is very much a story of my family. In the beginning, there was a expansion of the category of white to encompass people like my family. So, you know, there's a lot of literature, you know, how ethnic people became white. Well, I was Pavanelli, and I'm a Vowlander. And when my grandparents start coming over from the Alps, they start coming over in the like 1910s and 20s. It's really at the, they, they're going back and forth, but they anchor him. You know, he's born in like 1908, I think, something like that. And my grandfather. Well, the 1920s was a period of virulent xenophobic nationalism in the U.S., So it was that period in which there was just hysteria around the flooding of the U.S. by these Southern Europeans, these poor, ignorant, disease-ridden Italians, Slavs, and anarchists, Jews, etc., right? And legislation passed to to restrict um, the intake of Southern Europeans, etc. So my grandfather insisted we weren't Italian. We were from Corizol. And we'd say, where is Corizol? Well, it's in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. But Grandpa, there is no Austrian-Hungarian Empire, right? So what we saw was from the 20s to when I was born, the, the expansion of the category of whiteness. So that very quickly, Italians or, I don't know, vowel-ending people like my family became white, right? We were just became white. And insofar as we became white, my inheritance didn't simply come from the past, but it my inheritance was in the present infrastructure of white supremacy. So no matter that, you know, my grandparents were poor peasant knife grinders, you just saw this, the infrastructures of elevation. So that by my generation, which is only two, if you look through the paternal line, suddenly we've gone from knife grinders to PhD academics, you know, just upper middle class folk. But something happened in the long arm of the critique of white supremacy, in which suddenly white people want to become ethnic again, right? Why do they want to become ethnic again? Because I would, I think at least some of this is, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to be seen as the bad guy if the politics of value is the politics of difference. I'm different too. So in its most virulent form, we uh, we can hear this in this these white nationalists who say, well, why can't we value whiteness? If black people can value blackness, why can't we value whiteness, right? And that's the most virulent form of what I'm trying to look at. The softer form is, okay, you, you're ethnic. Well, I'm ethnic too, right? And I can find my ethnicity by going into the past and looking at my inheritance. And suddenly I'm not white. I'm like Italian or uh, I'm Scottish. Or you see those commercials where I thought I was German, but now it ends up I'm, I don't know, what's another one? <laughs> I'm Spanish, <laughs> right? Because 
<laughs> I got my DNA and it ends up on 90% Spanish. And, and you see, there's that great commercial where they're dressed up like one kind of eth- white ethnicity and then they sw- switch into another costume of another white ethnicity. 51%. So all, yeah. Yeah. So all of this is a way of making this really false analogy between ethnicities in which like I'm different and you're different and we're all different. Therefore, no one can hold, hold me accountable to the advantages afforded to me through the infrastructures of white supremacy, right? And so this graphic essay in the guise of a memoir is meant to say, you can be as ethnic as you want. You can even know exactly where your village is. Not only that, but your ethnicity can be rooted in a form of frontier violence that is sad, compelling, horrific. And yet, if you think your inheritance is something that comes from the past, Do you not understand the infrastructures of inheritance, which are always present tense in a way that allows some people to be mobile, both in terms of their ability to literally move across space, but also mobile in the ability to move up through social space. And no matter the collapse of the white middle class, an increasingly precarious space for many people, that infrastructure is still in place. And again, with COVID, we, we see this both in terms of mortality, but we also see it in terms of job losses. The people who are going to lose their jobs, who have lost their jobs, the people who have to keep their jobs and risk their health, and the people who are going to lose their jobs and risk their health are not that precarious white middle class. But those who are going to collapse are persons of color, Native Americans, African Americans, first generation immigrants. Absolutely. Those who aren't in whiteness yet can't make a kind of like a false equivalent ethnic form of whiteness. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Anthropologist and critical theorist Elizabeth Pavanelli discusses the figure of the virus, an antagonistic agent built out of the collective assemblage that is late liberalism, perhaps most readily imagined as the zombie. Life turned to non-life and transformed into species war. The COVID-19 epidemic causing what was a tremble, uh, you know, a very, very slow... Uh, economic recovery, right. kind of masking the wage stagnation that we've been experiencing since the exactly. 1970s. This this tremble really being turned into an earthquake by COVID-19 does reveal how these structures that are racialized, obviously, are structured by gender, but as a way of extracting value from us, how they haven't they haven't changed at all. And I think that your point about them being always present tense is something that we really feel in this moment. Right. So even even the 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 cunning of recognition was to allow others into the community of the human, of the liberal human, but marking their forward forehead, sorry, marking their forehead as they entered the room, right? As a qualified one. We are letting you in. We are recognizing you as part of the community of the liberal human. And economically, that same structure has been in place, which we're, we see in every downturn. We saw in the U.S., but globally, and we're seeing in a very dramatic fashion right now with COVID. How do we understand these late liberal gestures of inclusion as a mechanism by which a deeper structure of acute 
accumulation and dispossession continue. We, we have endless examples. We have the example of drug laws that incarcerated generations of African-Americans and persons of color around the cocaine and crack, quote, epidemic. But once white Americans started having a meth problem, suddenly we changed the laws. So those, it's not something we don't know. And those who have to bear the burden really do know. I don't have to tell them. They, they know. They tell me. How do I, as a scholar, try to make it impossible for those who benefit from these structures not be able to lie to others and themselves about those benefits? The infrastructures of inheritance are such that no matter what they do, they're kind of just always lifted up a little bit, lifted up a little bit. I could fall a lot and still be lifted up a little bit. And the pandemic is this thing where we all are falling. We all are falling. And there's this way that some people are allowed to fall into an abyss and other people are caught. There's a social safety net that they have access to. um, There's hospital beds that will be made available for them. That's right. And of course, whenever, uh, if a vaccine, you know. Yeah. There'll be, there'll be that line to get the vaccine will be ordered. We will not be surprised by, by the logic of the order. And I don't think characterizing the COVID virus as an enemy is helping us. What that's doing is keeping us from seeing how the COVID virus is actually once again, revealing the ongoing infrastructure of racial and settler disparity, which we, when we call it an enemy, we're focused on combating it, which we, you know, we need to, no one wants to, as I said, no one wants to be or be in the vicinity of an actual virus. But if we're trying to figure out how to put it back where it belongs, which is not in our bodies, this is revealing how certain kinds of bodies, brown, indigenous, black, are, have been, and now are really carrying the burden of liberal forms of capitalism. They're, they're, they been bearing the burden. The enemy is not COVID. The enemy is white supremacy and capitalism. The the fantasy of a limitless exploitation of each other and the earth. That's the enemy. That's our show. We'll close with Exosphere from Clifford Thornton's 1967 release, Freedom and Unity. Thanks to Elizabeth Pavanelli for helping us think through the forms of social organization that tend to only become visible to us as the frame that supports them shakes and crumbles. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show was produced by Bella Bravo. I edited the program. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.